0: Hello and welcome. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Frank Benedetto, who's joining us all the way from the US. So, Frank, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So, we're going to get into your background, but as a very succinct starter. So, Frank is a doctor of physical therapy, we'll use the American phrase, even though we're we're mainly UK-based. He's also a serial entrepreneur, and currently he's the founder at the Honey Badger Project, which... I'm familiar with through some of our uh, one of our previous guests actually so uh, i'm really looking forward to hearing more about that as well so frank depressingly i'm in a fleece top you're definitely not in a fleece <laughs> where are you speaking from today
1: i am coming to you from florida where it is uh sunny and 75
0: yeah well yeah it's definitely not sunny and it's not 75 here but it's uh it's good it's not that bad here So uh, are you from Florida originally? How how have you ended up there?
1: I am not. I was uh, born and raised in New Jersey and made our way down to Florida last March. I will die here. Let's just put it that way. not leaving anytime soon. I'll I'll come visit, but I'm not leaving anytime soon.
0: Yeah. So what brought you down to to, uh, Florida?
1: A whole lot of reasons. I have three kids and uh, my oldest is 14. Middle is 11. Youngest is four. And none of them are actually like team sports kids, which means in the winter, it is very difficult to do things that are active and outside. And, uh, you know, I I just kind of looked at my life and realized, wait, I'm location independent and I'm choosing to live here. (laughs) What are we doing? And that was the main driver. Yeah, I would say that, you know, just wanting to be outside all year long and live kind of the exact place we wanted to live, uh, you know, right
0: by the beach. Yeah. 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 Well, they're good. Good arguments for me. I've been to I've been to Disneyland, but that's 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 the extent of it. I've been invited back to Miami, which I need to do. So next time I'm down there, I'll definitely give you a shout.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So, uh, yeah, I'd like to dig into a bit of your background then. So you've got a really interesting history and you've, you've done a number of different things, which I'm particularly interested in from not just the. Uh, the, the rehabilitation space, but also on the business side of things. So what made you get into or want to get into physical therapy in the first place?
1: Yeah, so my origin story starts when I was 16 years old, and I had broken and displaced my femur on the high school football field, the American football, to be clear. So helmet to the knee, crack, stood back up on it out of reflex, Rotated my femur basically like you know, 120 degrees. It was a pretty gruesome injury, and uh, I was in a full leg cast on my parents' couch for you know two months straight. It was, you know, it was a different time back then. You have to remember like, the progressive rehab that we have now is not the way. It was it was a full leg cast, fully immobilized, external fixator pins. And my first day back to physical therapy, I remember coming home to my parents and saying. I know what I want to do. This is it. This is I'm going to be a doctor of physical therapy. I was just so enthralled by this process that took my hairy, skinny leg that <laughs> was essentially just a bone wrapped in in skin and and it was it was stiff as hell, obviously after being a full leg cast. And in one hour, I was moving it and starting to gently weight bear. I was like blown away by the whole process. And that that's the origin story. Where, where 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 it goes a little sideways, I'll, I'll give you a little bonus story on like where's because the, the persona of me now, if you're following on social media, isn't one that is particularly kind to the state of the industry. I believe that our industry is globally outdated and uh, on the verge of extinction if we don't evolve for good reason. And it's my intention to help drive that evolution not only in physical therapy but uh, across healthcare at large. but where my story gets interesting is when I was 20 between undergrad and grad school. So I went to a three and three program they have in the state. So it's three years of undergrad, three years of graduate school, and then you get your bachelor's degree and your doctorate in physical therapy. And between those two, I had a surgery for my shoulder slap tear. That I never needed. Now now I know I never needed. And the, the rehab before the surgery was absolute garbage that claim, you know, that quote unquote didn't work, which then necessitated surgery. The surgery was an outdated procedure for that time. It was around 2000, I don't know, 2003 or four or something like that. It was an outdated surgery for that time period. And then I went back to the same shit physical therapy by very nice people, mind you. I love them. They're great people, but it was absolute bullshit physical therapy to which then essentially removed function of my shoulder, which I still have very little function of the shoulder. So yeah, I have like 40 degrees of external rotation, like 20 or 30 degrees of internal rotation. Can't throw a ball, whole bunch of stuff I can't do. And, uh, the next year I start PT school and I learned what should have been done to me. And I was like, what the fuck? What, what, how did they're, they're good people. They cared about me. I didn't question whether they cared about me or not. How did this happen? And that's when very slowly, I'm not going to pretend like I realized it then. I didn't. But that was the seeds of this, like, I think the system is broken. And even the most well-intentioned people inside this broken system can't do their job. And we're all just giving ourselves a pass for incompetence, blaming it on the system. And uh, yeah, that's that's where I won't, I won't keep the rant going, but that's where, that's where the story turns a bit.
0: Yeah, no, we can. We can dig into a bit more about the system later on, but like, so where did you study? Where did you go to study your? Where did you go to study?
1: Uh, I went to Kane University for my undergrad, which was in. uh, I earned a bachelor's degree in psychology, which I do believe informed the way I approach the movement sciences. So 90% of people in the states have a biology or chemistry background or exercise physiology background getting into the movement professions or any sort of you know formal medical profession and i was always gravitated just drawn to psychology and it shaped the way i looked at at the movement profession because i intrinsically knew based off of my training that this thing you know this meat vesicle is tied together by this thing that has like thoughts and feelings and emotions And i don't think we could separate them as much as we'd like to believe that let's say pt school lead at least back then leads on to believe uh so that that really did shape my approach
0: right so so you actively so you went to do psychology and at what point did you then decide that you wanted to do physical therapy then
1: it it was in high school that i decided and i i the way it works is that you get to choose your undergrad in that program so it was a that three and three year program you choose okay, your focus, right. but you you just have to make sure you hit the requirements. So let's say I needed a chemistry course that most psychology students would never need to take. I earned my bachelor's degree in, in psych while checking the box for my PT school requirements.
0: Right. Okay. yes yeah, so yes, different different setup here. There's a lot more doctors of physical therapy in in, in the US than over here. But that's interesting then, because I think at the psychology we were chatting beforehand, and to me that's just fascinating and the the mind is becoming even more and more relevant with mental health issues and, and all of these things that are becoming more commonplace and talked about. But how did that influence you from like the physical therapy standpoint then in terms of understanding the patient? Did it, how, how helpful was that?
1: Incredibly. I mean, I would say that from a very young age, I, I assumed that the way people think and feel affects their perception of pain. And that was a bit ahead of the curve of the pain science trend that popped up. And again, I'm not pretending like I had these thoughts nicely formed like that, but the concept of it had always been built into the way I treated. So the, just some basics of like listening skills were always super important to uncover what people were feeling and how fear impacted the the way they navigated their, their uh, medical conditions, um, you know, nocebo language. So the, a huge part of the fascination of one of the classes in undergrad was around this concept of like the placebo effect. And I remember being like, what, what, like what, how we being like 19 year old me. was like, wait, so we can just give people sugar pills and it does all this stuff. What, like, how are we not dissecting what this means to a, a, another level? And I, again, I didn't necessarily put it all together but these things shaped the way I approached you know, patient care, because if, if, uh, you know, the, if you un- once, once you understand that your words have. A, you know, like quite literal neurochemical response in your patient's minds, your word selection then becomes a hell of a lot more important. And I think too many clinicians are not as conscious of their word selection or how they speak Or just being conscious of trying to be a motivator or being conscious of trying to inject positivity into people's lives and just how much that can impact any diagnosis. You know, I've supported multiple family members through cancer and the physicians, the the oncologists that made the biggest impact, they were consciously injecting the appropriate amount of hope along with their treatment. And the ones that had devastating consequences to, to my family members, they treated you know, my family members as though they were just statistics. Okay, you have a 20% likelihood of this, and now we need to turn this medication up next. And I do believe that mortality rates are li- likely correlated in some capacity. I get I understand not all cancers are treatable, but the treatable ones that that are you know, the ones that are treatable, I can't help but wonder if how they're managed impacts the outcome. And we're talking life or death in those situations. So most of us listening to this podcast aren't in that situation. But, uh, you know, I, I've been taken there just through some of my personal experiences.
0: Mm, yeah, no, I think it's really, really an interesting point. So for, for when you were doing your when you'd moved on to the, the doctor, the, 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 the elements of things, how many of the the other people that are on that course had done psychology? And so for the people that hadn't done that, what, did you see a difference in, in their, their way of delivering? Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. It, there was there was one or two other people who who had gone through the undergraduate in the psych degree. And I would say that it just more naturally puts you in the perspective of treating a person instead of treating uh, a condition or taking on the analogies. You have to remember too, when I was coming up, at this time in healthcare in the early two thousands, we were viewed as mechanics, and patients' bodies were viewed as cars, right? That analogy was one that was widely accepted. And that's that leads to a whole slew of problems, especially as the as the pure biomechanical model broke down a bit, if you didn't have something to more holistically look at the client, a lot of clinicians went through these existential crises where they really didn't know what to do. you know, like did. did every, if you thought manual therapy and ultrasound was the only skill you had and then that particular type of manual therapy and ultrasound became defunct by research what are you left with who are you you have an existential crisis on your hands as an identity as a provider when you get too anchored to any one treatment modality or technique whereas when you see the person as a whole and your skill sets as you know a pie chart or a range of options of different tools you have That you then go and select based off of each individual person, you have a sort of you carry yourself with a different identity as a clinician.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, do you think that that would be something that's would be a good option that there should be more emphasis put on that psychology elements of things in an interaction with people?
1: Yes, absolutely. I I think that that it's uh, it 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 should be more required than not.
0: Yeah, I mean, my
1: my my belief, too, is that behavioral psychology specifically is the key to unlocking the actual skill set. So a lot of times there's probably somebody listening to this podcast that's shifting to one of two extremes who's like, yeah, you're right, Frank. You know, it's all psychology. It's all pain science. It's all what we say. And then there's another group that's saying Ugh, another pain science guy. And I don't identify as a pain science guy. I'm like, I literally don't. Except that this is like a trend here in the states. I don't know if it's the same over in the UK. But essentially, the biomechanical purist rejects this notion. And what my one of my call to arms in, in this category between the biomechanical people and and the pain science people is that there is an in between where we have to acknowledge that no matter what your skill set is, so I'm a big believer that there is no one right way to treat. That there are lots of right ways to treat. But no matter what way you treat intervening on your patient or client's behavior is fundamental meaning that you are not fixing them with your hands that has been disproven that you are providing even if you do manual therapy or some sort of in-person intervention it is much more likely that their success is correlated to them doing some sort of intervention on their own you know some sort of form of exercise mobility stretching meditating, whatever it is that they have to do on their own. That is actually the gatekeeper to most healthcare outcomes. And getting people to actually do the thing that our expert knowledge has informed us that they need to do is the gatekeeper. And that is behavioral psychology. That is behavior change. And I believe that no matter what field of healthcare you're in, we all need to start taking steps towards being able to get people to change their habits and routines and day-to-day functions to be able to implement our expert knowledge, regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of biomechanical to, let's say, pain science.
0: Mm. And so like, at what point were you starting to formulate this then? So you, you, you're finishing your degree and, and so on. For one, did you know what you wanted to do then? Did you have a clear vision? And what was your view of the system at that point?
1: yes so the 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 way i phrased it when i was younger and i actually have a paper that i wrote in college that the essence of it was incorporating positive psychology into physical therapy to improve clinical outcomes because i think i had just from my own journey from my breaking my femur tearing my meniscus as soon as i recovered from that then having my shoulder you know, I had spent probably cumulatively I don't know a year and a half two years in physical therapy by the time I was 20 years old and then I learned about how positive psychology can influence clinical outcomes and I, I recognized that there was an absence of that. I recognized it was like do this stretch, right? What's next? Do this exercise. There was not a big, you know, component around visualizing a return to sport or injecting belief that I would be able to get back to a certain thing or motivating or celebrating milestones where it's like, Oh, congrats, man. You got hundred pounds on a leg press. That's a huge landmark after breaking your femur. Like th- th- what an amazing thing. So I, I, that my initial gut was that positive psychology should play a role in this field. And I, I went and found a job that uh, gave me ample time with clients because that's the only way that I knew at that time, especially now mid two thousands, to be able to do is just making sure that you had a long enough time to be able to actually have conversations. And then that evolved as my career went on, to then realizing like, oh wait, I think there's asynchronous ways. I think there's ways that we can inject this part of it around the physical skill set that we've developed using readily available technology. So I I believe that the the theme remained constant, and now the way we deliver that has evolved and our understanding as a society has evolved significantly. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, there's definitely, definitely big, big shiftings in, in that currently. So once you had graduated then, what was your first move into, into like proper work saying?
1: So? Yeah, I, it was in a one-on-one clinic and it was a, it was a, yeah, you know, I felt lucky that I wasn't in a factory style clinic. So the, the, a lot of my friends were in places where they had to treat three or four people an hour and I was able to treat one person an hour for the most part, one at one person every 45 minutes. Uh, but the sad reality is that I did burn out, you know, so, so one-on-one time I do believe is viewed as this gold standard because the health insurance model typically robs us of that. So when you treat three or four people an hour, you think that one person an hour is the way. And then so many people including you know, including myself, get to that and then realize that is just as emotionally if not sometimes more emotionally draining to spend you know eight to ten hours a day every day of the week one-on-one and you do end up having for the most part uh some degree of energetic drain that occurs and it's my belief that it's because it's actually not the ideal way to practice i do believe that one-on-one has a role but doing one on one 40 hours a week, you know, 40 one hour sessions a week. I don't know too many people who can sustain that for a prolonged period of time. It is
0: interesting actually, isn't it? Because it's like my my fiance, she's a CBT therapist, so she sees people and it's you know, she's dealing with quite big things and it's it's draining, but they're they're limited to a certain number of people that they have to see. Whereas in you you're also physically treating people and dealing with psychology so yeah i'd not really thought of it like that but it is that is, that is quite an intense thing isn't it as well
1: yeah yeah absolutely and and then i think what ends up happening is there's a there's like a secondary moral injury that comes from this that's more damaging because the only person to blame is yourself so it, the way we see this happen in the states quite often is a physical therapist works at a mill you know factory style clinic where they're seeing four to six people an hour they quit that they open up their own practice where they see one person an hour, the new, ch- the change at first is alone to give like a, gives an injection of energy. And then when they get up to full caseload, especially if they don't have necessarily like the business skills to grow a team and to like develop intellectual property to be able to like attract people who want to stay employed. Cause if all you do is sell sessions and then hire people to sell sessions, they're just going to leave eventually. So if you, if you lack the business skills, and now all you're doing is working for yourself, doing nonstop one-on-ones, you burn out again, and now you don't have an employer to blame. You don't have insurance companies to blame for the most part. You, you blame yourself. And this is where there's a mass exodus of uh, right now happening out of healthcare, across the board, across all industries, but especially in physical therapy. And I believe this, the last reported statistic was 22,000 people left 22,000 PTs in one year left the profession. And that is just a terrifying number and I'm not blaming it all on one on one care. I believe that there's a pie chart of responsibility for this. It's people not thinking that there's another way other than insurance care. And those people also not seeing that private practice is a viable option for them. Therefore, they create this grass is greener fallacy that going and doing something completely non-medical, even working for insurance companies or doing something as uh, anything other than than healthcare is more appealing to them than doing something inside healthcare because they they just don't see another way.
0: Mm. Yeah, so at what point did you start to see this then? like, what point, have you always had the entrepreneurial spark in there in terms of looking for like, what's the next thing? You You didn't see yourself as just working as a physical therapist.
1: I was very fortunate to, you know, if you've ever read the book Crossing the Chasm, there's a a bell curve of, you know, I believe it's called the early adopter bell curve, and this this is usually revolves more around technology, but it's really actually archetypes. So if you're listening to this, try to put yourself in one of these categories. There's there's the the type of person who always wants to be the beta tester, you know, so like uh, Apple has the the feature like test flight like test out the newest version of this app and you're like yeah i'll opt in it'll burn my phone out my battery life will suck but i'll get the newest version of the io 17 which is better than whatever or we opt in. so there's there's like the beta testers uber comes out for example think back then and the first people to be like get picked up by a stranger in their own car i'm in right so like that that's the the truest early adopter innovator archetype. Uh, actually, I, I believe it is called the innovator. So it's like front end of of the bell curve. And then there's early adopters, where as long as there's a touch of social proof, oh, someone else got picked up by Uber and didn't die, I'll do it. You know, this is like a, a touch of social proof, and then they'll move. Then there's two more categories left, or actually three more categories. There's the early majority. So now, if you imagine the bell curve, now we're starting to get into the meat of it. The early majority need social proof, but they are willing to move slightly ahead of the mass crowd. So they're not early—they're not innovators. They're not going to take the risk. They're not early adopters, but they're—they're going to move once the early adopters and innovators pave the way. They'll follow. And now here's the rest of the world. Now on the other side of the bell curve, we're coming down the other side. Now we have the late majority who will only go once the early majority, once there is ample social proof, two years you know, of social proof. And then there's the, the laggards, which is that last part of the tail end, who is still using their you know, uh, iPhone 4, uh, you know, like still has an AOL address or some crazy shit like that, that they'll never move until they are physically forced to move. And I'm fortunate to be an innovator. So, but way before I was even in healthcare, I enjoyed tinkering with like Android phones. So when Android phones came out, you could like tinker with the operating system and like, you know, customize it to be yourself. I was far from a coder or developer or anything too technical, but I was always a tinkerer with technology. And that just kind of coincidence, coincidental passion uh, served me very well in my profession because when apps started to come out, to help deploy expert knowledge, I was like, oh, wait, my expert knowledge could fit in this. I was very easily able to see how sometimes non-healthcare-related apps could deploy what I wanted it to do. And then when the healthcare-related apps came out, I was like, oh, why would anybody use paper home exercise programs? And this was, I don't know, like a decade ago when everybody was just printing paper home exercise programs. I was like, what are we doing? There's an app for this. Why is not everybody on this app? And um, I would say that's become actually a defining variable for me is just being an early adopter mentality has led me to uh, you know, establish myself as an innovator in the profession.
0: Yeah. And then, so how, how did that manifest itself then? Like what, when you saw this tech that you could use, what, what yeah. was the thought process?
1: So the earliest version was we just started to realize that every person coming in for sessions should be on an app telling them what to do between sessions. It was like that simple. And I still think that if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in any form of healthcare where you need them to do your patient or client to do something between sessions, that there's an app for that. And it's probably cost $10 to $100 a month total for you. I'm not an affiliate. I don't give a shit which one you use, but if you're not using an app in your healthcare practice right now, like I I don't know if you heard about this thing called AI. Uh, It's real. It's coming. And if you're already using technology in some capacity, even a minimum viable way, just delivering, you know, communication between sessions or delivering a program between sessions or habit tracking between sessions or a community of clients who are all sharing the same struggle between sessions or matching you know let say you're uh, uh, somebody who works in heart disease and diabetes it, you just match them with a health coach who actually helps them make the changes you need them to see between your six-month sessions instead of giving them a pamphlet that they're never going to follow like, take the effort to just go match yourself with a health coach who's who's aligned in your mission who's using an app and you're going to be blown away what comes and when The next wave of innovation, which is around the corner with AI, you're going to be one step closer to being able to actually implement that. Whereas everybody who's acting as laggards in healthcare right now, which is a lot of them who are not going to move until they're forced. I do think that there's a chance they get fully left behind. I do think that they get replaced, not not evolved at all.
0: Mm. And how how did you think COVID affected that? That just, well, the speed of how things moved.
1: That's you nailed it. So the COVID accelerated every trend that was already existing. I, I actually don't believe that COVID brought any new trends into play as it relates to this stuff, as it relates to you know, uh, th- this a- area of health. It, I had launched my fully digital platform for fighters, for combat athletes in 2019, and I just happened to be ahead of the curve because of everything I just shared. And then in 2020, I realized that I had found myself in a really unique position. Everybody needed to learn what I had already been doing for a year before it was required, before it was a skill set. And, you know, I've since taught 700 clinicians how to either go fully remote or hybrid, which is a combination of in-person and hybrid, which I believe is actually the the most powerful model in the the future of of all healthcare is, is hybrid. I don't believe there's, I don't believe there's one use case you could share with me that someone could just use a session in isolation without some sort of continuity or some sort of coaching in between that session and follow-up session whether that be cancer diabetes heart disease uh you know pelvic health issues for women postpartum issues for women any section of healthcare i believe hybrid is going to be likely the, the the way forward
0: and so, yeah, just explain more about how you think that would look then.
1: Yeah, give me one example you think would be most hit home for your audience.
0: Um, well, I, so I was speaking with a strength and conditioning coach today. So like that personal training, but more than like rehab on, on the verge of rehab, but personal training and also I think like there's a big shift towards amateur runners. I've never been a runner, but I'm getting more into it now which I think is another another one, which I think is interesting, but yep. again, from that rehab space.
1: Cool. So let's use that example. How many sessions per week on average do you think that trainer does with, with one person?
0: One person, um, probably say one, one, probably one would be an average, maybe two.
1: Okay. So one to two hours a week out of 176 hours, I think there's in a week. I'm not a numbers guy and I'm not a memory guy. So I'm probably wrong, but (laughs) think about the percentage of time that actually is. How realistic is it that what we're doing in that one or two or even three hours a week is going to cause a meaningful, lasting, long-term change? It's not likely. So the reality is, is that those sessions can and probably should still exist on a, let's say, weekly basis, and then a readily available app to house the expert knowledge and communication and accountability and behavior change. It should be used between those sessions. So for example, maybe you teach some sort of movement that's brand new that is really warrants the session. So if you're going to do something in person, it should have the following requirement. It should not be able to be done online. And if it can be done online, you should do it online. Or remotely or asynchronously. So that means then you have to be constantly putting what you're doing in person through this, this checkbox of like, can I just film this and deploy that? If so, do that. And if not, that's a really good use for a session. For someone who's, let's say, not as naturally coordinated, not as naturally an athlete, let's just use you as a r- amateur runner who maybe is working through some knee pain or some foot pain getting you on a treadmill and like personally being there as you're running, see your stride, coach you through, match you with the right shoe wear, uh, you know, show you stretches to make sure you fully understand how to do them because maybe you're not naturally as coordinated or you have a low training age. So low training age, meaning that you know, you, you can't just watch a video and then do this thing because, oh, yeah, I've done that. You need to be shown and taught it. Great reason. Love it. Then everything between that should be using an app that says uh, run 1.5 miles tomorrow and then report afterwards exactly how you felt on a scale of zero through ten how hard was it on a scale of, so zero through ten how much pain did you have on a scale of zero through ten whatever other variables you find important and then the coach can then go in and see that data and fluctuate change advance regress the plan Instead of waiting a week to get more data to then advance the plan.
0: Yeah, no, no, it definitely definitely makes sense. Yeah, so you're engaging the client throughout throughout well throughout the whole week rather than just waiting for that one session and then just turning up and, and waiting for those things. Yeah.
1: And, and I'll use one more example. Sleep. We we we're like in the middle of the sleep crisis as a society because mostly of our technology and because of the stress of most people's jobs. Most overuse injuries have very little to do with the biomechanics of the person. And I have everything to do with the volume that they train compared with the the volume that they recover. And I'm not talking about recovery as like foam rollers and all that stuff. you can do that, that's fine. But I'm talking about like proper nutrition, proper hydration, proper sleep. You know, the real big pillars of, of recovery that, is really impossible to intervene on in one in a one hour session. And instead those things could be layered into a user journey to steal from the technology world. I prefer calling it a member journey, but a member journey of you're an amateur runner and I developed, let's say a six month plan for you to go from couch to 5K as the app calls it, except no, almost no one finishes those. And if they do, they usually end up developing some sort of overuse century in the process. Because it's narrowly focused on the programming only. And instead, it might be matching that exact program with the different habits that you might want an amateur runner to build, like sleep. Hey, as you start your running journey, your body's going to need to recover more. So your challenge this week is to get a full seven hours of sleep, if not more. Here's what we're going to do. Every day, you're going to see a little button appear inside this app that says, did you get seven hours of sleep? Click yes or no. And in our next session, we're going to review it. And if we need to intervene, I'm going to share with you strategies on how to get there. And if not, we're going to move on to the next step, which is hydration. And then then we're going to layer in habit change where it might be like sleep, hydration. Did you drink X amount of water? Then it might be sleep, hydration, protein quantity. Most runners are super skinny. Most runners turn into bones, you know, the longer distance ones. Here's how you avoid that. Proper nutrition, carbs before, carbs during, carbs after, protein throughout the day. Now do you see how an app can't replace this, or at least an app isn't as easily available to replace this? Or maybe if you do do this, you'll have the app that replaces the older apps.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. And how how much these sort of things are being utilized by private clinics
1: How much are these being utilized shockingly? If you do, if you do 5% of what I just mentioned, you are now in the top 1% of innovative clinics in the world. Healthcare, because we have a third party payer environment. Innovation is stifled. In every other industry where the, the paying party receives the product, innovation is required because you could pay me or you could pay a competitor i innovate the competitor sees that they innovate maybe they innovate above or they just copy if they just copy pressure's on me to innovate again if they have innovate above me my my obligation do i innovate to match or do i innovate to improve so the 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 free market has a natural innovation built into it whereas the third party payer which pays you for checking in people, by the way. So you you don't get paid to fix or help people. shouldn't say fix. You don't get paid to help people. You get paid to check people in. That's it. So you check enough people in, you make your money, regardless of whether you help them or not. There's no negative feedback loop. The market doesn't then stop coming to you. Or the market doesn't also reward you when you get them better faster. In fact, you actually get less incentivized because you're checking less people in so innovation has not only been you know uh, not not incentivized innovation is actually disincentivized because if you innovate and you check less people in you make less money therefore innovation requires new monetization strategies
0: yeah yeah and then so is that In terms of your main role within the We Are Honey Badgers, is that that really around about helping people to to be able to to offer this service?
1: Yeah, our our mission is to help clinicians of all kinds reimagine their careers by repackaging their skill sets. And the way you do that is by choosing a target market or a niche, depending on the type of model. If you're a local in-person business, We usually have you start with more of a target market if you're a fully remote online business that allows you to go much smaller to start and you there there are combinations of these two models by the way it's more of like a holistic view called the evolving practice model but these are the two primary models that people start with is either local hybrid or or a fully remote practice and you have to have your who to know what problem they have and that once you understand what problems you're going to solve, you can then come up with all of the solutions and think of your solutions outside of just your innate skill set. So, that notion of sleep, basic nutrition habits. Most physios are too caught up in, like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not a nutrition coach. I don't have any certification in nutrition. I'm not asking you to prescribe meals. I'm just saying that likely, no matter who you're working with, they probably don't eat enough protein. This is like a worldwide just trend that amateur, you know, people, people who are not professional athletes just don't eat enough protein. So, and you, you don't violate your practice act by saying like, Hey, I think that what could really help you if this applies, some of you, this might not apply. And there's another habit or another nutritional thing that might apply, like eating more protein, eating less processed foods, eating less sugar, drinking less, you know, uh, caffeine, like th- These are all things, let's say you're talking about lower back pain. Uh, we know that just going for walks, just going for walks is research-based, proven to help intervene on low back pain almost more than any other intervention, as long as it's not something acute and traumatic. Yet how many physios are caught up just doing nothing but mobilizations and stretches and not having some sort of accountability? Hey, you're going to go for a 0.25-mile walk tomorrow and by the way if you lose 10 to 20 pounds if you lose five pounds chances are that might correlate with a decrease in your back pain too so let's do this no snacking after dinner protein rich meals these are all within our scope Mm.
0: and then so how do you help someone so let's say i think you mentioned there about trying to hit a specific target market. How do you help people with their vision of what maybe they should be looking to do as well? Yeah. Do they-
1: there's three there's three criteria that there's and a lot of this has to do with the speed at which somebody needs money because it, it too many healthcare providers right now are in a position where they're kind of trapped in a job and they don't have the savings or the ability to go all in on their idea. so the the speed at which they need money might, necessitate them doing what we call bridge business a bridge business is a place to where they could more easily buy themselves out of their job so they could work full-time on their own thing and then once they have their full-time you know practice going they could pivot away from the bridge business which is let's say an easy to access population that has the money to spend on an intervention but not, might not be their calling I'll give you a stupid example that I'm going to go back to the 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 answer of the three the three requirements. Let's imagine you wanna work with professional golfers. It's just your dream, but you have no access to them. You're not a member of a country club. Like, you don't know any pros. That's a dream. That's not a business plan, that's a business dream. And I believe we should pursue our dreams. However, we have to reconcile that with reality. So you might go to a local gym and make sure it has two or 300 members, make sure the owner's on site, make sure there's no other competing services, and pop open a a, a clinic inside that gym so that you inherit a a captive audience and solve the problem for that gym and monetize in a way where you could replace your salary in, let's say, 20 hours a week, which is very doable, by selling, let's say, a a plan of care that's a mix of sessions with the asynchronous support. So this way you're making a full-time caseload salary off of a halftime caseload demand because you're leveraging in technology. Now you might not wanna do that forever, so you have to have the discipline to not make more money than you need. And then once you have your full bandwidth, you've quit your job, you now start going and building relationships with, what you start posting golf content online. You start building relationships with golf pros. You start, you know, you, you go to wherever they are and start meaningfully participating and adding value. And if you do that long enough, you will be able to then start a business doing that. Most clinicians don't put themselves in a position to do that. So let me back up and answer your question. Like, okay, how do you start? The the three things that so we've had 700 clinicians through the program and we're constantly reverse engineering and reverse studying who was our top successful client? Why did they become super successful? How do we dissect that and relay that to our newest clients to give them the best possible odds of being that amazing success story? And here's the three things that we found. The best businesses are built on a population that has high problem awareness. So uh, Ben, who you interviewed, works with people who are recovering from ACL injuries who are trying to get back to a sport. Well, when you tear your ACL, uh, you're pretty aware of your problem, right? When you're an amateur runner, think of the spectrum of problem awareness from completely unaware of your problem to hyper aware i tore my acl and it is public knowledge that you have to go to rehab for months after that it is known and accepted so therefore they are basically saying i'm looking for a rehab specialist to work with me they're already in the buying pocket of i want a solution now you have an amateur runner who guess what they could just open their door and go run they don't know that running the same path every single day is correlated to overuse injuries they don't know that they need to stretch. They don't know that they need to strength train. They just run. They don't know that they need to replace their shoes every certain amount of miles they, they just run. So if you try to sell to an amateur runner, you need higher level marketing skills to make them pro- aware of their problem and then work them through what we call the awareness ladder to get to the buying pocket. So number one is it, you know, uh, problem, natural problem awareness. Next, the next variable is high intrinsic motivation. Chances are, if you tear your ACL, again, I'm not trying to make everybody go create ACL businesses. I think it just makes it more tangible to have an example that's consistent. And I could give other examples if it helps. But if you tear your ACL, do you do that like walking on the street? Or do you usually do that during a sport? Usually during a sport. If you're doing a sport, Chances are you want to get back to that sport. Or if you're doing a sport, you want to get back to some high level of activity. So by nature, that injury happens to people who have a goal. And if you can target somebody who has a high level of problem awareness and a natural high level of, of motivation, let's contrast that to amateur runner. Amateur runner starts to develop foot pain. What do you think they do? Hop on the peloton hop on their bike, go swimming, go to yoga. They just swap it out. So there's not necessarily a high level of intrinsic motivation in an amateur runner, unless they have anchored to, it's my life goal to finish this race. I got to do the Boston marathon. I have to do this thing. And then the, the, the third and final is that they have, they're ready and willing to invest in the solution. So there are people who, uh, can have a high level of problem awareness and a high level of intrinsic motivation, but their psychographic profile is one where they either don't have the money to invest or they do feel as though that free options or going the traditional route with healthcare with the third-party payer system is viable. So again, using the ACL population, it is known that you need to be in rehab for 12 to 18 months now. I mean, it it is statistically proven that that recovery should be no less than one year what you're doing at one year should be really high level very advanced but that recovery process is not over for one to two years because the reinjury rates are so incredibly bad what does most insurance cover three to six months so we have a natural gap now where the person has this you know, almost by forced need to then use their own investment to do it, and chances are if they're playing a sport and they have that high intrinsic motivation, they're likely in a demographic that could afford it. I am not the guy who wants to sell healthcare for wealthy people only. However, I have recognized, though, that people, clinicians with amateur business skills need to set themselves up for success by operating in an environment that sets them up for the fastest success possible, and then what I believe is the theory of demonetization. Demonetization is everything starts off more expensive. And then through innovation if we make an intention to we could actually lower the cost of that same quality of care using technology over the cost period of time to then make it accessible to everyone which is really important as we reimagine what healthcare could look like
0: yeah no thanks for that and then in terms of you've mentioned the different things what makes a successful business model in terms of the characteristics of the, the person delivering it so ben for example what makes a successful person, what are the, what are the, p- the skills that they need? Yeah,
1: so I would say in this category, we need people, we need more healthcare providers to step out of their risk tolerance zone. Most people got into, into healthcare thinking that they would find employment that would give them a good life. Most people in healthcare did not get into this field thinking that they were going to be an entrepreneur. In fact, I would say most clinicians who have a business still don't identify as an entrepreneur. They were sort of forced to open up their own clinic. And we're really at a tipping point where we need an army of the new age of employers. We need people to become employers so that the people who really don't have the skill have a place to go. It's not, it's not for everybody but it, we need to start stretching our imagination of what we're capable of. And oftentimes the first thing is realizing that staying in this job that is slowly killing you is actually the riskiest thing you could do. And you're lying to yourself in convincing yourself that starting a side hustle on the side that will eventually buy your way out of the job is somehow inherently more risky. It's not. Staying there, staying stagnant, Staying trapped in a broken system, being held up and patched together by tired clinicians is actually the risky thing. It is time for us as clinicians to start expanding. So what's the single word answer it is expanding risk tolerance. If someone can expand their risk tolerance and as a function of that, start to um imagine a different way, look at readily available technology and say, how can my skill set fit into this? instead of taking the easy way out and saying, ah, that's not meant for me. Healthcare providers are incredible at making up these kind of bullshit excuses of like, oh, that worked for them, it won't work for me, or that worked for that niche, it won't work for me. That worked for them, it won't work for me. And it's all bullshit. What we're doing inside our program is, is creating the trailblazers so that then once there's enough trailblazers, everybody else just hops on the trail. But we need more trailblazers right now because the pace of innovation is not even close to the pace of burnout right now, and people are leaving the profession instead of reimagining their careers.
0: Yeah, I think even again, I don't know what it's like exactly over in the US, but over here, I think even let's say physios, for example, they they're not used to having sold before sold you know even though that's what we we all do all, all day every day yep. um but i think because of the public health system and that's just inherently what people like here that they don't particularly like selling even if it's additional sessions within that so like what's your experience around that that mentality within healthcare professionals
1: yeah great book I, i'm very hesitant to, re- to recommend books because i think we all have either an Amazon list or a bookshelf full of books that we've never read. But to, if this is you, if the, uh, I have a training inside my program, it's called The Right Book at the Right Time. And I believe we need to be super selective about what book to read. If you are already on the edge of like, man, I just love this concept of going into business and I'm ready, but you're terrified of sales, which is a lot of people. That's like the gatekeeper variable. To Sell us Human is an incredible book that will show you a different way to think about sales. But sales is, is really, uh, it's a, it's a transformational process when you do it ethically. And I think that most healthcare providers are afraid of sales because they're selling something right now that deep down, you don't believe in. deep down, you know, they don't need to come three times a week deep down. You don't believe that they're actually going to get better coming once a week. So when you think of sales, you think of selling something that you're currently doing that you don't really believe in deep down inside for more money with your own brand name at stake. Of course, you'd be afraid of sales. So when you go through the process and you have hand built something, so my view is that business is art. I believe that business when it's done properly is an expression of self. And when you approach it that way, And you do the business building first and you don't just slap a price tag on a session with you. And instead you build a process, that user journey, that member journey that delivers them from A to B and has all these different features. Sales becomes this exciting thing that you're revealing to the world and showing this person how I could help you because it's something that you had handcrafted instead of arbitrarily picking a high price point on the same thing that you're doing now that they can just go to the clinic and get for free or for some minimal output of course you're not going to feel good at selling that you shouldn't sell that that's not what i advocate in any capacity
0: mm. is that is that a daniel pink book to sell yes human?
1: i think it is yeah i'm i don't have that one near me so i but i'm pretty sure that's who it is
0: yeah, no, he's he's very good. He's very good. And I, I know you just said you don't want to give a list of books. I, I want you to give a good list of books. I love hearing different ideas of things. And, uh, you know, obviously you've got great energy and, and understanding in this area. So if you were going to give another couple of books that you think are essential reading for, like, uh, entrepreneurs or business owners in this space, what 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 would okay. you recommend?
1: So give, give me a couple of specific problems, because the way my brain orients is right book, right problem, right book, right time.
0: Um, all right. So if we think
1: of,
0: so we've touched on the sales side, but I think sort of building your, your own vision in terms of what you want to achieve in your career. So we've got some of the people, that are, well, maybe even some of the older people as well, but certainly people that are quite young students trying to decide where they want to go in their career and life. Anything around yeah. that topic?
1: Yeah. So what, what I'm going to give you a, a, a related answer, which is purple cow by Seth Godin. So the 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 reason why that book is so powerful it is how to build something amazing that you're proud of that stands out because i believe that if we just set our goals in a vacuum i'm a big believer in non-duality and what that means is my personal goals are achieved by the impact that i look to create in the world and when you anchor those two things together you can then unrestrictedly set money goals because those money goals are symbols of you have reaching a new level of impact. So I'm a big believer in identifying who you feel called to serve, what your calling is, identifying your mission, getting a fuzzy vision of what that looks like, and then letting that inform then what you want out of your career. Otherwise, you get like this Internet marketing, you know, shallow goals that fall apart as soon as things get hard, because if it's not bigger than yourself, you're not going to get on the podcast and share your views. You're not going to film yourself and put it on social media. You're not going to write the email and send it to a list of a thousand people. So I'm a a big believer in, in both. So Purple Cow by Seth Godin.
0: No, that's a good answer. Good answer, All right? One more on this one, then. So, what about culture and like, in terms of getting the right team around you and like internally, but but you know also the people that you work with as well.
1: Knowing that most most of your audiences are startups, is that correct?
0: Um, yeah, no, no. Some pretty established people there. Some people that are very established in like sports medicine as well. So I think okay. just. Yeah, like uh, I think culture is a big one because like a lot of yep. sports teams and you know it's quite it can be quite a um, up and down industry.
1: I'll give you two. I'll give you two levels then. So the, the for anybody newer, tribes by Seth Godin also tribes, is absolutely incredible, required reading, and then Jocko Willink's two books on leadership. Jocko Willink is a Navy SEAL from from the u.s who is in my mind the absolute best at establishing culture and it's in a shocking way so it, it, it's not this bravado kind of you, when you look at him and you see him you think it's going to be this like overly macho kind of thing and it's not it's all about how taking accountability yourself and taking extreme ownership leads then others to take extreme ownership but it's actually very tactical training so jocko has two books uh, I can't remember which ones first, but it's basically the dichotomy of leadership and then extreme ownership. I believe it's extreme ownership first, and then the dichotomy of leadership. Those are for your more advanced business owners.
0: Yeah, no, I'm. Gonna, I've not heard of of those last two, so I'm gonna. I'll check those ones out. Yeah, that's very interesting. No, no, I. I really enjoyed talking to you here, Frank. So, like, if you were gonna. Summarize this. It's like one take-home message at the end of this. What would you say to people in the in that the healthcare industry?
1: Yeah, it, you got to do one thing this week to innovate. And oftentimes the word innovation feels too big. It feels like you have to, you know, completely reinvent your business or quit your job or do something drastic. And I want to I want to bubble that like distill that all the way down into the tiniest possible action step, which can be downloading an app to experiment with to see if it could help you help people better. It could be recording your own thoughts around, you know, the people you, that you feel called to serve and the misconceptions that they might be carrying because of old, you know, the, the, the broken system made them feel that they were broken. It could be the tiniest action step that leads you in the direction of innovation, because our field at large, healthcare needs it more now than ever, and we need an army of individuals innovating, not just waiting for the big guys, because they are are incentivized to not innovate. So this is guerrilla warfare, where we need to on the ground as individuals, innovate our way to disrupting this broken system.
0: Good. Well, that's a powerful message to finish on. That's uh, now that was great. I really appreciate your insights on that, and it's uh, I think it's it's really interesting to hear your perspectives and some definite, some good ideas that I know some of my friends and colleagues would would benefit from hearing and will will you know embrace. So like, I appreciate that and thank you for sharing it and giving your time up. Anytime, happy to be here. Brilliant. Yeah. Next time, if you just invite me to, we'll do it. We'll do it in person in Miami. Deal.
1: Good, ma'am. Thanks, Frank. Have a good day. You too.